I invite you to turn in God's Word to Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 this morning. Hebrews 9 and 10. Hebrews is the book that most often refers to Christ in terms of uh, the priesthood, his work as priest. This morning we want to think about the, excuse me, the Lord's Supper and of Christ and his sacrifice. It's the once-for-all character of Christ's sacrifice that we give most attention to this morning. We want to read about that in Hebrews 9, verses 23 through 28, and then in chapter 10, verses 11 through 25. And then we'll turn to the Heidelberg Catechism. Hebrews 9, and verse 23, the word of the Lord The writer says, the Holy Spirit says, Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, As the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. And then in chapter 10, dropping down to verse 11, verse 11, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law into their hearts, and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, 
and so much the more as you see the day approaching. God's Word, we turn to the church's confession. If you would take out the Forms and Prayers book in front of you, that we might turn to the Heidelberg Catechism to page 232 in the Forms and Prayers book. Page 232, 232, at the bottom there you see Day 29, we want to read Lord's Day 29 and the first question and answer of Lord's Day 30 for our study this morning. Question 78 says, talking about the Lord's Supper here, it says, do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? And it answers, no. Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. The question 79 follows up, Why then does Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood? or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul used the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Answer, Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as bread and wine nourish the temporal life, so true too his crucified body and poured out blood are the true food and drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood, as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs and his remembrance, and that all of his suffering and obedience are as definitely ours as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. And then Lord's Day 30, the first question and answer 80 there. How does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants, to, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass, the Roman Catholic version of the Lord's Supper, but the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. Thus the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. So far, the church's confession. Let's bow to God and ask him for his help. Our Father in heaven, your word sheds light upon our path. A shining lamp, it guides our feet. Your righteous judgments to observe. Our solemn vow we now repeat. 
Your precepts are our heritage. They daily make our heart rejoice. To keep your statutes faithfully shall ever be our willing choice. Hear us, God, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we saw recently in 1 Timothy that the church is given that exalted title of being the pillar and the ground of the truth. And one of the essential duties of the church as the pillar and ground of truth is to make confession, to proclaim, to declare the truth of God. And Reformed churches have a habit of doing that through written out confessions. And the Heidelberg Catechism is one of our confessions. And in that we, we set forth what we believe. We announce publicly, this is how we understand the scriptures. This is what we believe the word of God teaches. Now the Heidelberg Catechism is very near and dear to us, but you should know that it's, it's known all over the world. It's loved all over the world. It's recognized all over the world as a, a very unique confession. It's very warm and personal and pastoral. It opens up what is your only comfort in life and in death. And then it has questions and answers that that don't just list out some doctrine, but often say things like, how does this benefit you? And so it's a wonderfully warm and pastorally sensitive confession. But although it's so well thought of, there are those who say that in this wonderful confession, there is one outstanding blemish. This beautiful confession is marred by one question and answer. And any guesses this morning as to which one that is? Question and answer 80. Question and answer 80. Isn't it too bad, some say, that this question and answer is there? It's it's out of place or it's uncharitable or some would say it doesn't accurately represent what the Roman Catholic Church believes today. And so some churches and denominations have relegated question answer 80 to a footnote in the confession, or some have bracketed off as words that are not confessional, not binding upon people anymore. But the truth of question answer 80 still stands. And against all the false teachings and false practices that would undermine the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the atonement, we are called to stand firm. So that our Savior's glory is in no way diminished and so that our comfort is in no way lessened. The book of Hebrews says to Christians who are facing now another round of persecution, And many are tempted to go back to the Judaism and back to the old ways. The writer says, hold fast your confession without wavering. Stand firm on the truth you know. The Christ and his singular sacrifice is better than all the other things that men would offer to you. And this morning we need to see that. That we must stand upon the completed, accomplished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is his glory, and it is our joy. Let's consider that this morning, first of all, that proclamation of Christ's completed sacrifice in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper proclaims to us the finished work of Jesus, that first of all, and then secondly, let's consider our enjoyment of the continuing service of Christ. Christ, the priest in heaven who has accomplished atonement, is still busy as a priest 
serving us. So those two points this morning, Christ's completed sacrifice and then Christ's continuing service. Well, the Lord's Supper, we sometimes forget, is actually a festive meal. We don't use the word Eucharist ourselves very often, but it means Thanksgiving, and it is a Thanksgiving meal. It's a celebration of a victory Jesus Christ has accomplished. We should approach the table with a certain soberness. We don't come casually when we speak of the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross and all of his passion and sufferings. But on the other hand, it's, it's not a funeral service. Certainly not a funeral service of an unbeliever where there's great grief. It's a celebration of a victory. Christ has atoned for our sins. He did something on the cross 2,000 years ago that was fully sufficient to reconcile us to God. And so we rightly confess in answer 80 of the Catechism that the Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It's wonderful, isn't it? The Lord's Supper assures us of what is written over and over again in the book of Hebrews, that Christ did it once for all, that he accomplished it, that it's finished, that Jesus did it. By sacrificing himself, Jesus did what no Old Testament priest had been able to do. A great labor it was for thousands of years in the Old Testament. All these priests in a line, all so busy, all bringing more offerings, and none of them taking away a single sin. And then enters Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in human flesh, and he brings to the cross, to the altar of the cross, himself as the victim. And he offers himself up as the sacrifice, and through that, He fully pays for all our sin. And he gives to his people the Lord's Supper as a meal to remember it, to be assured of it, to celebrate it. That Christ did it all. That to his perfect sacrifice and righteousness you can add nothing. You may not try to add anything. You don't need to add anything. It's as definitive as the creation of the world or the fall into sin, when these events took place, they were realities accomplished for all the rest of history. There's no going back. And so it is with the cross of Jesus, when he atoned for sin and says it is finished, an event has occurred in the history of the world. There's no going back. And when God raised him from the dead, God's saying there's nothing that needs to be added. I accept it as the perfect satisfaction of my justice. And he calls his people in to eat and drink and to believe that by the broken body and shed blood of Christ, complete forgiveness of all your sins. But it's right here then that we confront the sad mistake of the Roman church, the Roman Catholic church. We confess that the mass teaches something different. That the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. The Roman Catholic Mass, in terms of official Roman Catholic dogma, we're well aware that there are Roman Catholics who have no idea what their church teaches. 
and therefore may not embrace what their church teaches. But if you ask, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach? What is their official doctrine? It's this, that Christ has to be reoffered daily in the Mass. Although they speak at times of the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, and although they claim that the Mass is of one sacrifice with the cross of Jesus, Yet they deny the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross 2,000 years ago. That was the case at the Council of Trent, which met in the 16th century, concluded its work in 1563, met in Italy and Trent, and they made it clear. Let me just read to you from the Council of Trent. And for as much as in this divine sacrifice, talking about the Mass, In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, that same Christ is contained and immolated or sacrificed in an unbloody manner who once offered himself in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross. The Holy Synod teaches that this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. Propitiatory, meaning... It appeases the wrath of God. It restores favor. The Holy Synod teaches that the sacrifice is truly propitiatory and that by means thereof, this is effected that we obtain mercy and find grace. It goes on to say, For the Lord, appeased by the oblation or the offering thereof, and granting the grace and gift of penitence, forgives even heinous crimes and sins. For the victim is one and the same. The same now offering by the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross, the manner alone of offering being different. And a bit later, wherefore, not only for the sins, punishment, satisfactions, and other necessities of the faithful who are living, but also for those who are departed in Christ and who are not as yet fully purified, it is rightly offered. So they confess it's a propitiatory re-sacrificing of Jesus Christ, needing to be offered not just for the living, but even for the dead who are in their thoughts in purgatory undergoing the flames. They need, by this offering of Christ on the altar at the Mass, the kind of grace that would be found through appeasing God And if you say, no, 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 they they think it's just a a sacrifice of praise, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, then you haven't read the Council of Trent because in their condemnations they say, if anyone saith that the sacrifice of the Mass is only a sacrifice of praise and of thanksgiving, or that it is a bare commemoration of the sacrifice consummated on the cross, but not a propitiatory sacrifice, or that it profits him only who receives, and that it ought not to be offered for the living and the dead for sins, pains, satisfactions, and other necessities. If anyone saith any of that, let him be anathema. Let him be condemned. So that's what the church teaches. That was in the 16th century, concluding the year the Heidelberg Catechism was written. And it's the same thing that's been echoed on through the ages by various popes and church councils. Even the New Catholic Catechism that came out in 1992 
quotes many of those words I just read with full approval as their understanding of the Mass. What does this result in? It results in compromising the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross. It teaches people to trust not in what Christ accomplished 2,000 years ago, but to trust in the Mass, to trust in the priest's ability to re-offer Jesus, to stake your hope not only for why you're alive, but your hope long after you're dead, when you're suffering in purgatory, that hopefully there's still a priest offering a Mass for me. And this is an insult to the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and a very sad way to live. It is the very opposite of what the book of Hebrews says. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering, re- offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. That's the gospel. That's the reality. That's the glory of Jesus Christ, our perfect mediator. That Christ does what no priest had done before. God, in terms of, of tabernacle furniture, didn't call for benches and seats to be set up because if you're in the tabernacle, you're at work. Christ so completed his work that he was able to sit down at God's right hand. Having purged our sins, he sat down. It's finished. No more work of atonement. No more propitiatory sacrifice. Nothing needed. Nothing could be added. And that's the joy of the church. A wonderful news for the living and for the dead. What wonderful news for us in this life and for us even in our dying hours. If at those moments now our minds are flooded with all of our shortcomings and all of our sins. And we know that we in a moment have to stand before the holy judge of heaven and earth. Should our thoughts race back to some minister or some priest or what he might offer for us tomorrow? No. But to the once for all sacrifice of Christ, our great high priest, who has done it. And to enter into heaven to sing glory be to the Lamb. Who has died and never dies again. Who was offered once and is never offered again. To bring glory. To enter into heaven to be welcomed. By that new and living way Christ has made for us to be welcomed into the very presence of God. To sing praise to the Lamb for his victory. The one who is able to say on the cross, it is finished. The Lord's Supper is but a sign and seal upon the preaching of the gospel. Both the sacraments, remember, they, they're not communicating to us a different grace than we receive in preaching, but just communicating it in a different way. They are signs and seals upon the things that are preached to us, upon the promises of the gospel. And the Lord's Supper is declaring the same thing the preaching is declaring to us, that Christ accomplished. But this morning, as we think about the air of the Roman Catholic Church, We ought also to recognize that wherever we see heirs and other people, we ought to look inward because we're tempted always to the same thing. 
And we're tempted, brothers and sisters, to try to supplement the work of the Lord Jesus and to add to it or to put our confidence in something else. That we should, each one of us, ask ourselves, in what besides that singular sacrifice of Christ do I try to find assurance in that my sins are forgiven? Are there perhaps ritualistic practices that I engage and feel I need to engage and repeat every day in order to maintain God's favor? Sometimes that happens with devotions. It's a wonderful thing to be disciplined in the reading of the Bible and to be disciplined in prayer. Don't let anyone tell you that's legalism. That's called Christian discipline, to be faithful in the word and in prayer. But if we missing out on devotion some morning, then think to ourselves, well, now my day won't be blessed. God is against me and something bad happens. Oh, God must be angry with me. I've lost his favor because I haven't done devotions. But maybe we're coming quite close to putting our confidence in our acts. What other things do we tend to trust in? Good deeds or certain penance? Do we count how many times we've been to church as our standing before God? Maybe we could mention specifically this morning the regrets that, that some have for how they raised their children. Maybe someone here this morning, you sorrow over how you raised your children, what you did or what you didn't do, and maybe one has wandered from the Lord, and now you, you bear this, this grief. But now if you, you regret it, that you did not do all you should have done as a parent, if you've sinned against God and your children, how should you deal with that? Well, you should recognize that you cannot atone for it. You can feel guilty for 60 years and not in the least way atone for it. You can apologize to your children until you're blue in the face and not atone for it. You can pray on your knees for three hours every morning for your children and not atone for it. But you know who did? Your great high priest offering himself upon the cross, fully atoned for it. There is nothing that we need to add to the work of Jesus, to the one who says, your sins are forgiven, go in peace. And as we receive that promise of the Lord, and as we walk in peace, we may certainly remember a a wayward child and may appropriately respond to them or express to them at some point or maybe at more than one point, I'm sorry, we didn't do that right. Please forgive me. You may tell them the right way if they will listen. And you may certainly, yes, you ought to lift up prayers for the wayward child. But now it's not praying to a God who is angry at me that I, my my prayers, might win God over and gain his favor for where I failed. But it's the prayer of the one who's reconciled by grace. 
who trust that Jesus Christ has atoned for my failure as a father, as a mother. And it's resting in him who has so loved me. And who testifies to me repeatedly by the preaching of the word and by the supper. That he holds not a single sin still against me. That I call upon him who loves to hear my prayers. And who has, as he assures me, opened the new and living way into the holy of holies by the blood of Jesus. Presents his throne to me, not as a throne of wrath, but as a throne of grace. Who sympathizes with me. And who encourages me to call upon him. And to pray to the one who loves to hear prayer. And to the God who leads sinners not to self-righteousness, but to the cross. Because you see... If our prayers are self-atonement for our failures as parents, then what in the world are we praying God would do to our children? Make them self-righteous hypocrites who invent their own religion of self-atonement? Is that our great goal for our children? Is that the reason that we, we must feel guilty every day? Because we want our children to come into that wonderful guilt of never being able to rejoice in God. No. We pray in faith to a God who holds no sins against us. Asking that he would do for our children what he has graciously done for us. That he would lead them away from man-made religions and self-righteousness and self-atonement and lead them to the cross. Where they might be unburdened. And come to the table to the festive meal to know that Jesus Christ has done it all. It's not enough this morning to say that the Roman Catholic Church has it wrong, but God also wants to leave us, lead us away from all of our wrongs and all of our self trust to the cross. And to say to us, I've done it all for you. Your hope is not in what tomorrow will bring, what your minister will do for you, what the priest will do for you, what you will do for yourself. Your hope is on an accomplishment that Jesus did it. He satisfied God's justice. All the accusations against you were nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. The supper of the Lord is God's gracious token to us, in which God says, Have you any doubt that you've got bread between your teeth? Have you any doubt that you have wine in your mouth? Isn't that pretty real to you? Isn't it pretty personal to you that you are partaking of that? So much more real is the cross of Jesus for you. Jesus died for your sins. You have a stake and a share in his victory. Christ is your Savior, complete Savior. Rest yourself. Rejoice yourself. Be glad in your living. Let go of the guilt. 
Christ has borne the guilt. Rejoice in your master. Oh yes, walking through a world of trouble and a creation groaning to be sure, but, but always your eyes upon Christ who is offered once to bear the sins of many. And to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Is that how you're walking today? Have you given up the self-atonement of bearing always, always, always a little guilty conscience? Thinking that's your burden to bear. That's what you need to carry. That's why God likes you so much because you carry part of it yourself. Or have you, as he does in Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian sees it roll off him, the burden rolling away, Christ carried it for me. What an awful reinterpretation to think of the Lord's Supper as one sacrifice declaring to you that tomorrow you need another one, and the next day too. The writer of Hebrews says that was particularly Old Testament in preparation for the coming. But what a terrible insult to the glorious mediator to say to Jesus, what you did on the cross was pretty good, but not quite enough. No, the church of Jesus rejoices that by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. There is no purgatory There are no purifying flames you need to visit for a thousand years. There is life in Christ. The peace of knowing that despite all my failures, my sins are no more. And upon my death, not to some terrible place, but into the glory of my Savior I go. To sing glory to the Lamb forever. Christ completed sacrifice which can only then cause us more joy to recognize, yes, Christ's continuing service. Think of that secondly this morning. We're not saying that Christ is no more high priest. We're not saying that Christ no more has a ministry towards us. We're saying that Christ's ministry toward us is based entirely upon that completed sacrifice. And in the supper, we believe that. Well, in terms of the Lord's Supper, there are basically four views about what goes on there at the table. The view of the Roman Catholic is that when the priest says, Hoc est corpus meum, this is my body, miracle occurs, turns into the body of Jesus. Doesn't look like the body, doesn't taste like the body, doesn't smell like the body, but it is the literal physical body of Jesus, they say. And we say no. Because then you'd have to worship it, which is what seems to be going on when they genuflect and bow before it. And we say, no, Christ is in heaven and wills there to be worshipped by us. Then there's the Lutheran view, which says it's not that a miracle occurs, but they say Christ is physically present at the table because His body has become now like his divine nature everywhere present. And so his body is in, with, and under the elements of bread and wine. And we say no. Because then Christ's human body doesn't seem very human anymore. 
But our hope is that a human body is in heaven. They guarantee that our body will be there. And then another view gets tagged with the name Zwingli, rightly or wrongly, but the view that the Lord's Supper Christ isn't really present at all. Not in any unique way. And that the Lord's Supper is just a memorial service, just a remembering of what Jesus did. And we say, no, not that either. Because 1 Corinthians 10 says that in the Lord's Supper, we have a communion with the body of the Lord, a communion with the blood of Christ. And so what do the Reformed churches say? They say Christ is present at the table, not physically, but spiritually, the real spiritual presence of Christ Jesus. And that in the Lord's Supper, we by faith, by the working of the Spirit, are so united to Christ who sits in heaven that we actually have a fellowship with his body and blood. Not by chewing on it with our mouths, but by faith being united to Christ, God and man, united to the whole Christ, united to the very body of Jesus that hung on a cross and died and rose again. We have a fellowship with Jesus by the Spirit, a meaningful communion and participation in Christ that we can truly say that we partake of the blood and the body of Christ. That all that Jesus is and all that he has done is ours. Jesus said in John 6, you have to eat his flesh and drink his blood if you're going to be saved. And we say that's what we do by faith. We dine with Christ. We're fed by Christ. And so we confess that something mysterious and glorious happens at the Lord's Supper, that Jesus Christ, as we believe the promise of the gospel, as we eat and drink in faith, believing the promise of the gospel, that Christ by the supper is assuring us that he will feed and nourish our souls all the way to heaven, and in fact he is. As we eat and drink in faith, he is communicating himself to us. It is a real and a meaningful means of grace in which Jesus gives us his strength, his life, his victory. He's not being re-sacrificed. He's not being offered again. But he who was offered once and has risen triumphantly is giving his riches and his life to us in this meal. So though we often grow weary in our battles against sin and grow discouraged and wonder at times if we can press on. The supper is saying, here's the food. I will feed you. I'm your shepherd to feed you. And Christ is nourishing us all the way to eternal life. What a glorious meal it is. Not to be elevated above the preaching of the word. It's just the same promise communicated in a different way, but not a meal to be diminished. And to say that nothing is happening, no, but to partake of with great joy. The promises we hear proclaimed in our ears are now the promises between our teeth and lips. And we feel them. They are real. Jesus died for me once for all. I have life in Christ. He bore my sins on the cross. As real as this bread and this wine. And as real as this food, so he'll never leave me to myself. But all the way home, he will encourage me, he will strengthen me, he will sustain my faith until I sing glory to the Lamb, victory of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, may that be your hope this morning and your confidence. Every day our sinful nature and all of its pride tempts us to put hope in ourselves.
Every day Satan tries to sneak in a little false religion into our lives and lead us down some path of ritual by which we can obtain God's favor. But every day the gospel returns to us saying, hold fast, don't let go. Say it again to yourself, Jesus did it all. Once for all, he's taken away all my sins. God will never hold against me any of my sin. Praise the Lord. Amen. Gracious God in heaven, how we thank you for your gospel. Grant us the faith to believe. Save us from our sinful pride that wants to add to the work. Release us, O Lord, from false guilt. And where there is real guilt, O Lord, assure us that Christ has borne it, so we today can rejoice and be glad. In his name we pray. Amen.